Well, good evening, everyone. Great to be back with you tonight, and I'm uh, looking forward to this time together in a book that has been a, become a, kind of an interest of mine. It's the one I, you probably will not believe this by the time we're done tonight, but I think I spent more time on this book and this uh, message tonight than any of the others that I have worked on. And I just gave you a part of the notes. Uh, you may have read them already. I hope you didn't read them all, but uh, that's okay. We're going to take some time and go through them and look at some of the scriptures that are connected with them and try to try to make sense out of them. And I don't think we'll be able to cover them all tonight, but uh, at least I want to try to get us into it and share with you a few things that have helped me, I think, to try and understand what's going on in the book of Ecclesiastes and what it's all about. Uh, wisdom when we don't understand is what I called this one. I think that's definitely what Ecclesiastes is all about, and it's probably the most philosophical type book in all the Bible. It's interesting, there at the top of the page, I'm just going to start in on this, that early Jewish interpreters uh, regarded Koaleth as one of the anti-legomena. That means the books that were spoken against. Uh, these books were in the Hebrew canon. They were books that were accepted by the Jews, but they had questions about them. Problems came up and questions came up, and the rabbis debated them and talked about them probably around the time of Jesus Christ. The first of, the, of such books is the Song of Solomon. You may, you may guess why that one was questioned as far as whether it belonged in the canon. They considered it far too erotic, you know, to act, some of them did, to actually be included in the canon. Of course, they allegorized it like many people might do today. And they encouraged their young men not to read it until they were at least 30 because uh, they didn't want them to be overly aroused, I guess, or whatever, by the, the book Song of Solomon. But the, the second one that was questioned is the book of Esther. The book of Esther was questioned because the name of God is not found in the book of Esther. Where we would expect we might find it in chapter 4, verse 14, when Mordecai says to Esther that if you don't respond to speak up for your people, then... Maybe someone from some other place will, or, or help from another place will. We would expect to find the, God, the name of God there, but the name of God is not found anywhere in the book of Esther. We talked about the book of Proverbs this morning, and the biggest problem in the book of Proverbs was the seeming contradictory Proverbs in Proverbs chapter 26, verses 4 and 5. Answer, uh, answer a fool according to his, uh, his folly. Answer not a, a fool according to his folly lest you become like unto him, Proverbs 26, 4. And then it seems just the opposite in verse 5. Uh, Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own conceit. And we talked about that a little bit this morning. They're Proverbs, and they're really a good illustration of what the book of Proverbs is all about. You, As you interpret a proverb, you have to apply it correctly to the situation that you're dealing with. And uh, I think that solves it maybe for us, but for the rabbis... It was a bit of a problem, and they, they struggled with that. The book of Ezekiel. You know the Ten Commandments that it talks about the sins of the fathers being visited to the children to the third and fourth generations. Well, the rabbis thought that Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 20, perhaps conflicted with that. It says there, the soul who sins is the one who will die. The son will not share in the guilt of the father, nor will the father share uh, 
the guilt of the son. The righteousness of the righteous man will be credited to him, and the wickedness of the wicked will be charged against him. Again, two different aspects of sin, I think, that we're going to be responsible for our own sins, but there is an effect of sin that passes on, we learn in Exodus chapter 20, verses 4 and 5 and 6, to, to, previous, to following generations. And then the book of Ecclesiastes fits in with these other four we've talked about. They had problems about this book because they felt the book of Ecclesiastes was full of cynicism and despair. Let me read you a few of the verses that perhaps troubled the rabbis. Chapter 3, verses 20 and 21. I have trouble finding the verse divisions in my Bible here, I guess. But anyhow, here it goes. All go to the same place. All come from dust, and to dust all return. Who knows if the spirit of man rises upward and if the spirit of the animal goes down into the earth? Well, he answers that later in the book, actually, and talks about the spirit of man going upward in chapter 12, verse 7. But it seems like what he's describing there is our limited vantage point under the sun. And then it seems even more despairing is chapter 4, verse 2. I declared that the dead who had already died are happier than the living who are still alive. But better than both, verse 3, is he who has not yet been, who has not seen the evil that is done under the sun. Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verses 2 and 3. So these, Ecclesiastes is included among a books that is not a prestigious list to be in, actually, but it was included among these books that were questioned. There were questions that came up with the Jews about whether the book of Ecclesiastes should actually be included in the canon. And uh, it, uh, the, the questions still come up today. I can remember uh, when I entered graduate school at the University of Minnesota, one of the professors there it was a Marxist. And uh, he had, of course, real questions. He loved to challenge things about the Bible. And one time when I was in his office, he brought up the book of Ecclesiastes and the fact that it says when we die, that's all there is to it, that our, our life is over. And I said, well... I'd just been preaching through the book of Ecclesiastes, and I said, well, what about chapter 12, verse 7? The dust returns to the ground it came from, but the Spirit returns to God who gave it. And it, a lot of people forget about that verse in the book of Ecclesiastes. But thankfully, since I was somewhat aware, aware of it, I was able to give him an answer and uh, at least put him on his heels for a moment at that point uh, concerning this thing. But uh, there, there are a lot of questions even today about the book of Ecclesiastes. It's one of those books that is often studied in graduate schools and universities because I think many times they uh, think that it is sometimes, uh, they, they like to use it as perhaps evidence against Christianity and against uh, the authority of Scripture. But that's one of the things that I want to address tonight. Ecclesiastes is included in the wisdom literature of the Old Testament. Believe it or not, I'm already in the second paragraph there. Can you believe this? Uh, but it differs from Proverbs. Let's talk just a moment about how Ecclesiastes and Job also differ from the book of Proverbs. The book of Proverbs is what is called many times practical wisdom. Okay, and by that we mean that its authority is... Uh, tradition and observation, as well as revelation from God. Uh, and, of course, we believe, I believe, Ecclesiastes also is based on revelation from God, but the authority is more experience. 
And what we, we saw this morning in the book of Job, and I think what we're going to see in the book of Ecclesiastes tonight, is that a lot of what is going on in this book is people who face the realities of life and are asking really difficult questions that deserve to be asked and deserve to be answered. And it's different in that regard, whereas uh, the book of Proverbs seems to observe the world around, but it colors the world around in light of, I think, the covenants of the Old Testament, where if you do well, you're going to be blessed, and if you sin, you're going to experience the curse. Um, So I, I think there's a big difference in that regard. The speculative wisdom in the book of Job and the book of Ecclesiastes complements, I think, the practical wisdom of the book of Proverbs. And I think they're both necessary to really get a full picture of of the wisdom that the Word of God speaks about. Now, all these books are united, the next paragraph there, around this theme of the fear of the Lord. We saw it this morning in Job 28.28. We see it in the book of Ecclesiastes so we don't, so I don't forget to do this, look at the end of the book of Ecclesiastes. If you're not aware of this, look at the conclusion of the whole matter. I'm going to read verses 13 and 14. The book ends, now all has been heard. Here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. So after all the questioning, after all the uh, issues that have been brought up in the book of Ecclesiastes, the author comes to the end of the book and says, this is the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God. That is our duty. Because we are going to be judged by God someday very orthodox in its conclusion. But let me just take a moment and talk about this fearing God thing. We've talked about it a little bit, and we've talked about that it means to shun evil. It's the beginning of wisdom and things like that. But the fear of God is a word for Old Testament religion. Okay, it involves a relationship with God. It's not just cowering in fear before the God in heaven, but it's reverencing Him and respecting Him as God, realizing our place as humans and actually trusting Him and obeying Him. And it's even used in context of loving Him in the Old Testament. So please don't get the idea when we talk about fearing God, we're talking about walking around just being scared to death all the time of what God is going to do. As you study that word throughout the Old Testament, that proper respect and reverence for God is consistent with love and faith and uh, a reverence for him that is rightful and respectful towards the God of heaven. And that's how the book of Ecclesiastes ends. No question, it's one of the most difficult books in the Bible to understand. The next paragraph there. And uh, its message appears to contradict other portions, portions of Scripture. And for these reasons, sometimes the unbelieving world delights in the book of Ecclesiastes. Let me just say a word about the context of the book. The author and the date, uh, they they go together. Whoever the author is, of course, that helps us understand the date. And I'm not going to spend time on this, but to me there is a lot of evidence that Solomon is the author. Now there are other issues involved in that as far as the type of Hebrew that is used in the book that is sometimes thought to be a later type of Hebrew that doesn't go with Solomon. But whoever wrote the book, 
intended that we think of Solomon as the author. The words of the teacher, the son of David, it says in 1.1, the king in Jerusalem. And also if you look at verse 12, I the teacher was king over Israel in Jerusalem, chapter 1, verse 12. And with my simple understanding of scripture, it makes more sense to me to take the Bible at what it says and uh, to take this one as the Solomon that we know about from other places in Scripture. It says in verse, th- verse 16 of chapter 1, I thought to myself, look, I have grown and increased in wisdom more than anyone who has ruled over Jerusalem before me. I have experienced much of wisdom and knowledge. Uh, it seems to me a no-brainer that the book is telling us it's written by Solomon, which places it around 960 B.C., somewhere in that time period. The intended audience, let's go back to chapter 11 for just a moment. Skip back with me, if you will, to the end of the book again. This is not where the book of Ecclesiastes is usually used today, but notice who the intended audience of the book is. I'm going to begin in verse 9 of chapter 11. Be happy, young man, while you are young. Do you get the point? This book is addressed to young people. And let your heart give you joy in the days of your youth. Follow the ways of your heart and whatever your eyes see, but know that for all these things God will bring you to judgment. Great advice there. Follow your heart. Enjoy life. It's a gift from God. But balance that with a fear of God and realize you're going to be judged for everything you do. And uh, that's the balance that the author suggests here. So then banish anxiety from your heart, cast off the troubles of your body, for youth and vigor are meaningless. Here we go again, one of the main themes of the book. And then verse 12, uh, chapter 12, verse 1, remember your creator in the days of your youth. Again, this book is written to young people, and then we have this description of people like me in chapter 12, verses 1 through 6 or so there, that are... Uh, uh, hurting all over every time I try and do anything, it seems like. But, uh, and then we get look at verse 8 of chapter 12. As long as we're looking at it, we get to the theme again of the book that we're going to also see at the beginning. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Everything is meaningless. So the intended audience of this book is young people, believe it or not. Young people who are <clears throat> perhaps, uh, if you look down at verse 12 of chapter 12, Notice what he says there. Be warned, my son, of anything in addition to them. That is the words of the wise shepherd. Of making many books, there is no end, and much study wearies the body. Uh, Teenagers, don't use that one on your parents, okay? But uh, (laughs) I I think who he's talking to here, it looks like, is perhaps a young person, a young man, probably in that culture, not that I, but today it could be a young man or a young woman in our culture where, where in those cultures you hardly, I think, could find a woman who would read. But uh, in, in our culture today, of course, where women have greater opportunities than they did in that culture, it could be either a man or a woman who thinks that by studying books and that by, by pouring themselves into uh, learning that they can attain to the wisdom that is being described in the book of Ecclesiastes. The structure, just a word about the structure of the book of Ecclesiastes. Go back to chapter uh, 1 with me for just a moment, if you will, and look at the structure. 
You'll notice that in chapter 1, verses 1 through 11, it's in the third person. The words of the teacher, son of David, and then verse 2, meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. It's not, I am saying this, it's in the third person. The teacher said this. Now look at verse 12 of chapter 1. I, the teacher, was king over uh, Israel in Jerusalem. I devoted myself. So we move to the first person in chapter 1, verse 12. The first 11 verses are kind of an introduction that are spoken more indirectly. And you get the same change when you get to the end of the book. You'll notice that the first person ends in chapter 12, verse 7. And then in chapter 12, verse 8, you pick up the third person again. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Everything is meaningless in the last chapter. So we have a main part of the book in the first person where the preacher, Koaleth, that's what Koaleth means, is uh, speaking. But around that, you've got things in the third person. The thesis then, the last part of this context. We read the thesis at the end of the book. Look at chapter 1, verse 2. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. Now, no wonder, right? People get turned off by this book when you come to that. But that's exactly the thing I want to address tonight and uh, the the thing we'll spend most of our time on tonight. (coughs) Excuse me. I have a cough drop I've just put in, but probably going to take a minute here. So if you'll bear with me. How has Ecclesiastes been interpreted? Well, uh, I don't know that I'll read all of these, but let's look at a few of them. Capital A. Some deny a single author of the book and suggest that it's the work of an original author, a skeptic, but along with the skeptic, we have other redactors, that would be editors, who uh, are orthodox, like at the end of the book, Excuse me, and put the orthodox part in at the end of the book. Uh, However, it seems like if you look at the book as a whole, it indicates from what we've already read from chapter 1, verse 1, and chapter 12, verses 9 and 10, that the book is the work of one author. Uh, Others allow for a single author, but, but deny a fixed, unified viewpoint in the book. Uh, Capital B. They suggest that it's various reasonings of people and they're presenting different views. And then at the end of the book, they come to a final statement of faith. But look at chapter 12, verses 9 and 10 with me. Chapter 12, verses 9 and 10. Excuse me. It says, not only was the teacher wise, but also he imparted knowledge to the people. He pondered and searched out and set in order many proverbs. The teacher searched out to find just the right words, and what he wrote was what? In verse 10. What he wrote was upright and true, okay? It was upright and true. So for me to take the whole book as a series of suggestions of what, (coughs) excuse me, I don't know if I ever had this happen exactly the same before, but uh, I'm 
Uh, this is exactly what we're studying. I'm not going to try and figure out what God is telling me through this. I'm just going to trust him here. Lord, I'm trusting you. And uh, we leave it in your hands. So uh, thank you very much for the water. That's wisdom, though. You do what you can, right? You uh, take whatever steps you can. And already this water has made my throat better without even drinking it. I can feel it already. So <laughs> this is good stuff here. But uh, we trust the Lord. <clears throat> <clears throat> Thank you. Capital C. Some feel that Ecclesiastes is the confession of an embittered cynic, a selfish and callous old man of the world who found at the end nothing but a dire disillusionment. No wonder, right? If you start in chapter 1, verse 3. It's quoted in J.I. Packer's book, Knowing God. These, these people would suggest that he's trying to share with his readers his sense of the cheapness and nastiness of life. In other words, <clears throat> life is, is nothing. It's callous. It's, it's uh, meaningless. There is nothing to life. Interestingly, the Schofield Reference Bible suggests that Ecclesiastes is inspired. That it's an inspired report of what the author thought, however, <clears throat> and not revelatory. In other words, it contains the author's conclusions and reasonings, but it, it's not authoritative. It's like reporting the words of the serpent in Genesis chapter 3. Uh, it's not something that is from God. Uh, and uh, I, I think we can do much better than that. I think, uh, and that's exactly what I want to try and suggest to you tonight. So let me go to the last one then, page two. Others, and I'm one of these, I guess, emphasize that Ecclesiastes is a canonical book with authority. I believe its message is orthodox, and I'm going to look for a unified theme in the book of Ecclesiastes. And that's what I want to spend our time on tonight. <clears throat> we should find what a book means by looking at the beginning and the conclusion and looking for a theme throughout the book. Now, I've listed several themes here in your notes, and uh, I, don't, I don't think we'll get through all of them tonight, and I'm sure you're praying we won't either. But uh, anyhow, I would like to do the first one. I think it's the main thing. We can cover that tonight. I think I can give you a feel for what I believe is going on here in the book of Ecclesiastes. And it's this theme of meaninglessness or vanity. Everything is meaningless, or the ESV translates it vanity. The introduction of Ecclesiastes seems to give a picture of cynicism and despair. And that main theme is sounded in the introduction, and it's repeated in the epilogue. This idea that life is meaningless. Uh, the Hebrew word is kevel. Let me say just a little bit about it. It's often understood to have the sense of futile, or unsatisfying, or vain or insignificant. And that's why we say, the, the, these people suggest this book is written by a skeptic or a cynic. Uh, however, I, I want to argue for a few moments here, if I could tonight, that I, I think in the book of Ecclesiastes, it's clear that life is not meaningless or vain. And I'm going to suggest a different interpretation for this word, Okay. Uh, I, don't, I don't think the point of the book is life is meaningless or life is vain. Uh, there, there are several reasons why, and I've listed four of them for you in your notes. Let's take, if we don't do anything else tonight, I think this is the main thing I want to do, 
number one, I'm on page two, right under Roman numeral three, A, number one, human deeds do have consequences and moral significance before God. That's repeated in the book of Ecclesiastes. Uh, let's start with chapter 8, verses 12 through 13. Chapter 8, verses 12 through 13. If life is meaningless, this doesn't make much sense to me. <clears throat> it says in verse 12, Although a wicked man commits a hundred crimes and still lives a long time, I know that it will go better with God-fearing men. It's better to be a God-fearer who are reverent before God, yet because the wicked do not fear God, it will not go well with them, and their days will not lengthen like a shadow. Hey, you're going to be better off if you fear God, it says in chapter 8, verses 12 and 13, than you're going to be if you do not fear God. We've already read chapter 12, verses 13 through 14. Fear God, that's the whole conclusion of the matter, because you're going to give an account someday for good and for evil. Uh, look at chapter 3, verse 17, and also, I think, chapter 5, verse 4. Chapter 3, verse 17, I thought in my heart, God will bring to judgment both the righteous and the wicked, for there will be a time for every activity, a time for every deed. You know what that means? That means the deeds I do in life are important. They're not meaningless. They're not vain. I'm going to give an answer before God for them. And it's not just in the orthodox conclusion. Look at chapter 5 and verse 4 of the book. And I know I, I don't have time tonight to try and develop sections of this book, but look at chapter 5, verse 4. When you make a vow to God, do not delay in fulfilling it. He has no pleasure in fools. It's important. It has some meaning when you make a vow. Fulfill your vow the author says. So I suggest to you, first of all, the, the book of Ecclesiastes suggests that this idea that life is meaningless, uh, and there, there are various ways, skeptics say it just, you know, life has no meaning. The, the postmodern idea that there's no right or wrong, there's nothing that, that matters at all. But Christians take it a little differently. Many Christian authors say there is no meaning under the sun. And when we get up above the sun, then we'll be able to figure it out I'm not arguing for that either. I think there is meaning in life. I think life has significance and has importance. And I think the author of Ecclesiastes feels that way also. The secondly, there are advantages to being wise, the author of Ecclesiastes says. There are advantages to being wise. Let's look at these verses. Chapter 2, verse 13. I saw that wisdom is better than folly, just as light is better than darkness. So does that mean life is meaningless? Life, life is vain? I don't think so. If I'm supposed to seek wisdom and it's better than folly. Uh, verse 16. For the wise man like the fool will not be long remembered. In days to come both will be forgotten. They'll both be forgotten, but still he's a wise man. And uh, I think that's important there. Verse 26 of that chapter, chapter 2. To the man who pleases him, God gives wisdom, knowledge, and happiness. But to the sinner, he gives the task of gathering and storing up wealth to hand it over to the one who pleases God. Well, that's something he sees under the sun. Now, he says it's meaningless, a chasing after the wind. 
And I think that is because of the curse. He's trying to figure out with the curse why this happens, that it even seems to happen as it ought to here, but it happens. And uh, the, the man who, to whom God gives wisdom, uh, he gives knowledge and happiness, and the sinner has the task of gathering up and handing it over to, the, to this one who pleases God. Chapter 7, verse 12. Wisdom is a shelter. Wow, that sounds just like the book of Proverbs. If you're familiar with Proverbs, wisdom is a shelter as money is a shelter. Proverbs says things like that. If you have money, you can get better medical, uh, medical help. You can get better, uh, hire better lawyers to defend you. Money is a shelter. Proverbs talks about that. It's one of the things the author observes under the sun. Uh, wisdom is a shelter as money is a shelter. But the advantage of knowledge is this, that wisdom preserves the life of its possessor. So chapter 6, verse 12, uh, 7, verse 12, there are advantages in wisdom. And uh, perhaps chapter 8, verse 1 also, we'll read one more. Who is like the wise man? Who knows the explanation of things? Wisdom brightens a man's face and changes its hard appearance. There are others also, other verses that we could add there, but uh, there are advantages of being wise. So life is meaningless? Then why have things like that in the book of Ecclesiastes? Also, some things are better than others under the sun. Number three, let's look at these verses for just a moment, and then I'll try and make some sense of this. It says in verse 9 of chapter 4, two are better than one. I think every couple here tonight uh, would say that. Two are better than one because they have a good return for their work. Chapter 4, verse 9. Look down at verse 13 of chapter 4. A poor but wise youth is better than an old but foolish king who no longer now knows how to take warning. Again, this wise young person is better than a foolish older king. Chapter 5, verse 5. <clears throat> It's better not to vow than to make a vow and not fulfill it. Going back to the section there in chapter 5 on vows. And that's because of chapter 5, verse 1. If you go back to 5, 1, guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Go near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools, which is saying something you're not going to fulfill, who do not know that they do wrong. And I'll turn back to chapter 7, and I want to look at chapter 7 and chapter 9 for just a moment. Chapter 7 is loaded with these kinds of statements in the book of Ecclesiastes. Verse 1, it's true, a good name is better than fine perfume. I guess that means if you have a good reputation, even if you stink, people will like you. I'm not sure what that means, but a good name is better than fine perfume, and the day of death better than the day of birth. Look down at verse 5, I'm just going to read a few of these. It's better to heed a wise man's rebuke than to listen to the song of fools. Sounds like Proverbs again. There is some meaning to what takes place under the sun on this earth. Verse 8, the end of a matter is better than its beginning. Boy, that's true in football games, isn't it? As the Vikings have found out this year. The end of a matter is better than its beginning, and patience is better than pride. Uh, These are... These are things that tell me there is meaning under the sun. Some things are better than others. And look also at chapter 9 for, for just a moment. I don't know that we I guess need to spend a lot of time there, but chapter 9, verse 13. 
Actually, verses 13 through 18 are talking about the value of wisdom. I saw also under the sun this example uh, that, well, uh, verse 18 will sum it up for us. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. Wisdom is, is, has great value. Verse 16, wisdom is better than strength. So some things are better than others. And finally, number four, we've got these admonitions to remember our Creator and to be aware of future judgment that is done in life. So here's my suggestion for you to make sense of the book of Ecclesiastes. I would suggest to you that this word that we translate as vanity, it's hebel, I put it there under number four, it has a range of senses in Ecclesiastes, including insubstantiality and transitoriness, but I think its basic meaning, the way we ought to understand it to make sense of this book, is enigmatic or inscrutable. Uh, everything is beyond our control, our, our ability to understand. Not just our control, but life is beyond our ability to put it together and make sense out of it and understand it. And I propose to you, that's what the wise man is struggling with in the book of Ecclesiastes. He's a wise man. He considers life with wisdom, if you look at chapter 1, verse 13. He's trying to put it together and make sense out of it, and it doesn't follow. The ends of the righteous, the ends of the unjust, these things are not taking place, do not follow according to the way that it seems they ought to follow, the way that it seems things ought to take place. Here are some of the various suggestions of a rendering of that word, and I think the best one is maybe enigma or enigmatic, uh, meaning human life in its many facets is not fully within our power to comprehend. It's absurd in the sense of incomprehensible. Everything is beyond human, human apprehension and comprehension. What is hevel, what is usually translated vain or meaningless, cannot be grasped, neither physically nor intellectually. It cannot be controlled. Now, I'm going to spend a couple moments here, and I think what I'll do is just try to wrap this up with this idea, because I think this is the main idea. I may do a couple other things here, but... Uh, this is, I would recommend to you, if you don't have this book, Knowing God by J.I. Packer, I recommend you get this book. It's the Packer I'm referring to when I refer to Packer in the notes here. Uh, he's got a chapter in this on the book of Ecclesiastes. It's entitled, God's Wisdom and Ours. Basically what he's saying is, our wisdom is quite different than God's wisdom. He summarizes the message of Ecclesiastes this way. The real basis of wisdom is a frank acknowledgement that this world's course is enigmatic, that much of what happens is quite inexplicable to us, and that most occurrences under the sun bear no outward sign of a rational, moral God ordering them all. And if you think about things very much, I think you'll come to that same conclusion. Where do I see the moral order in this universe? Where do I see the reason of the God that I read about in the Bible displayed in what's going on here under the sun? Now, I'm not going to get into this, but if you're on page two there, you might just notice under the sun. That's the next phrase I was going to talk about. Let me just tell you that under the sun involves two things. It involves, and they're right there listed for you under that, it's our restricted sphere of activities 
our creaturely limitations, but it also refers to the vexation of the curse caused by the fall that affects everything that goes on in this world. And because of those two things, I think that is why what Packer says is exactly right, that the real basis of wisdom is acknowledging that this world's course is enigmatic. And I would translate that word instead of all is vain. I would say all is beyond my comprehension. All is enigmatic. All is impossible for me to put together. That's why I fear God and keep his commandments because I don't understand it all. Now, Packer illustrates it this way. He says uh, a lot of Christians have what he would call the comptroller. Well, he doesn't call it this. This is my play on what he says. He calls it the comptroller complex. We've all been to the airport. We've, we've been in the terminal. We've looked out at the airplanes, and it's amazing, if you think about it, the way they come and go, one right after another. I mean, if anybody sees that, you do down here on this side of town. And airplane, one airplane goes after another, and you're trying to figure out what's going on here. How come that one got diverted? How come that one was put in a holding pattern? How come that one landed? Especially when, when uh, you know, you have bad weather. We know they have flight, flight schedules and so on, but these things have to be changed sometimes. And what is going on? Okay, then let's go up in the comptroller's tower. And you get up in the comptroller's tower, and when you get it from that vantage point, and you could see all the charts and all the computers and everything that's going on up there, you can start to realize, okay, I can see why that one, why that one was allowed to land, why that one had to go into a holding pattern, why all these things are taking place. Now, Packer uses a different illustration of a train station in England, but I'm trying to do something that fits into our culture a little bit more here in Minnesota, but... Uh, he says a lot of Christians think that when they get wisdom, it's like God letting them up in the comptroller tower. And now I can figure everything out. I can make sense out of everything. And when something happens in my life, I'm able to say, okay, I know what God's trying to do with that. I know what he wants me to do now. I can read what uh, that experience meant in my life, why he allowed this thing to happen in my life. He's trying to show me this, or he's trying to show me that. And we start reading circumstances. We start trying to figure out everything in our lives, thinking that we are able to, to ha have a, a grasp now on exactly what God is trying to do in our lives. And I'll tell you, there are a lot of Christians, I think, who have done that, who've tried to make sense out of things, and have... Uh, really gotten discouraged and even depressed in their lives because it hasn't been, in the end, what they thought it was going to be. And I think there are a lot of other Christians, we can look at the other side of it, who want to know what's going on in their lives, especially with tragedies and other difficulties that have come into their lives, and they can't interpret it, they can't make sense out of it, and they think they ought to be able to, and they become discouraged. They, they despair. They go into depression, many of them, and many of them go into a, a, a place where they, they give up on the church, they give up on God, they leave the church because they cannot make sense out of their life. They think they ought to be able to. And I think that's exactly what we were seeing in Job this morning, very similarly, and now we're seeing it in Ecclesiastes, that life under the sun is enigmatic. Who do you think you are? Do you think you're God? We're not. And we can't put it all together. Uh, so Packer says wisdom is more like driving a car. Ooh, I bet we all do this differently. But here's the point. Uh, the comptroller is up there, and the comptroller, if you're in the comptroller's seat, you can make sense out of everything. You can interpret it. 
But if you're, if you're driving a car, you don't try to interpret, okay, the road's turning left, and you, dear, why do you think the road turns left here? You know, well, maybe sometimes we ask that, we, you know, but the, okay, the, the person in front of you pulls over uh, to the, the shoulder. You say, hmm, I wonder why they're pulling over to the shoulder. That's not really my job. I, I mean, there are three lanes here. Why aren't there five lanes here? Couldn't they use five lanes here? You know, I'm trying to figure this out. Uh, that's what, you know, if you're a controller, you can figure everything out. But driving a car, you don't ask those kind of questions. The job of driving a car is basically to put, you know, you get behind the wheel, you put your eyes on the road in front of you, and, and, and you basically make decisions, okay, as God gives you in life, as God gives you the opportunity to do it, what road am I going to go on? You know, how fast am I going to go? Uh, what should I expect? Try to be prepared. If you're driving home tonight around cornfields and woods, you better look for deer this time of year in Minnesota, right? We saw one, I think, uh, Friday night. And, uh, you know, you try to be ready for them. You try to react and, and you, you try to respond and make correct decisions as quickly as possible when things happen as you're driving down the road. That's wisdom. You're living life. You're not trying to figure out why everything takes place or to interpret everything that takes place, but you're driving your car, so to speak. You're driving yourself through life. And your job in life is this, and that is to respond to the things that happen to you in life. We were in San Francisco in 1989 when the Bay Bridge fell down. We'd gone across that bridge. If we would have been on it, with, you know, there's nothing I could do. There are things like that in life. I can't do it. Lord, Maybe you'll say it's over. You know, why this? Why me? You, can't, you have no control over it. It happens sometimes when we're driving our cars. But most of the time driving the car, like most of the time in life, you react, you respond. And, and to be able to do that quickly and to be able to do it accurately and make the correct decision, that's what makes a good driver who keeps her eyes on the road and, and is able you know, to, to know reality that's where Ecclesiastes comes in. Folks, Ecclesiastes is a hard dose of reality, of what life is all about. And it ain't always easy, is it? And that's what Ecclesiastes is teaching us. Packer says it is the best book in the Bible to put us in touch with reality. And you better be facing reality as you drive your car home tonight, and you better be facing reality as you face life. And you can't understand it all. But you can try the best you can to react and be ready for those things that are going to come in life. And that's wisdom. Let me say two things before I close tonight. There are two other parts here. I mean, that, that's my main thing that, I, I, that was such a blessing to me as I got into Ecclesiastes. Because I always thought the meaning of Ecclesiastes is, you know, we can't understand life. We'll understand it when we get up above the sun and so on. And that's true. An unbeliever, you know, can't make any sense out of it until they come to know God and so on. That's taught elsewhere in the Bible, but I really don't think that's the main theme, what the main theme is telling us. I think when it says everything is vain, it's saying everything is enigmatic. Everything from our perspective in this cursed world is very difficult, if not impossible, for us to figure out. And one other thing I would like to emphasize is on page 3, capital D. There are two things I want to emphasize. I've got two minutes left to 7, and uh, I, my goal was to try and finish up by 7. Look at capital D on page 3, up at the top. 
Actually, what have I got? Two D's there? You got double your money on that one, okay? The second D, the second one is the one I want. There's a repeated refrain in Ecclesiastes. Wow, I love it. I want to emphasize it for just a moment. Because I think for many of us, this is, this is where we are. We have the opportunity to do this and to, uh, to experience this, this refrain. It's the refrain of enjoying life. I'm going to read, there are several sections on this. I'm going to start in chapter 2, verse 24. A man can do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in his work. Wow. I love that. I love my work. I love to eat and, eat and drink too, I'll tell you that. But, uh, you know, I, I, uh, I'm glad this verse is here. But anyhow, this too I see is from the hand of God. This is a good thing. Uh, enjoy it. For without him, who can eat or find enjoyment? Boy, God has pressed that on my mind. My, I told you this morning, my dad's had a feeding tube for three years and three months, I think, in his stomach. We have a family get-together. My dad, you know, once in a while, he'll come up to the table and try and eat something, but he has a muscle disease like Lou Gehrig, and he has no muscles in his throat to swallow, and he gets food in his lungs and pneumonia if he eats. Folks, it is a blessing to be able to sit down at the table and have a meal and, and taste that food and enjoy that food. It's one of the results we get from working and, and the, the work we do. Do you realize it's a gift from God? That's what the writer of Ecclesiastes is saying here. Uh, the, these things are gifts from God. These are blessings from God. Look at chapter 3, verse 13. That everyone may eat and drink and find satisfaction in all his toil. This is the gift of God. So why am I emphasizing this? Because uh, what I want you to see, and I think it's there, yeah, it's there in your notes, it echoes an apparent hedonism that is difficult to reconcile with the uncertainty of the introduction and the orthodoxy of the conclusion. But the point of it is that the enjoyment of the good gifts of God is a statement of your faith. Who gave you those gifts? Who gave you those things? That is a statement of your faith. Uh, a person need not understand everything to be in control or be in control of everything to enjoy the simple and good gifts that God gives. And that's part of coming to the place where you say, God, I trust you. And it frees you to stop worrying about tomorrow and sit down tonight and enjoy your pizza or whatever you have before, you know, when you get home tonight. If you can't enjoy the football game, you know, enjoy your food you're having anyhow, you know, as, as you sit there and are subjected to your team perhaps losing tonight or something. But, you know, this is a gift from God. Stop worrying about tomorrow. Stop worrying about understanding everything and accept the good gifts he gives you as blessings from him and enjoy the moment he gives you. And, and that's, that's a statement of faith. And that's repeated often in the book of Ecclesiastes. You can look at those various verses there and find those. I wanted to say one other thing, the bottom of page three. Just notice the bottom of page three. What about human limitations? Let me just read what I've got there in that last paragraph. Human limitations and the challenges that come from there are a, them are a means of grace. Boy, I appreciated Pastor Miller's prayer tonight, thanking God for the opportunity to give to free us from our selfishness and covetousness and things like that. Do you ever look at your limitations that way in life? Are there a means of grace that cause you to focus upon God and trust Him more? 
divine, their divine gifts to help us learn our place in this world. Look at at least a couple of these verses. Look at 318. Chapter 318. The wise man says, I also thought as for men, God tests them so that they may see that they are like the animals. They're, they're but men. They're creatures. That's why God allows these tests to come into your life. The trials to come into your life. Look at chapter 3, verse 14. I know that everything God does will endure forever. Nothing can be added to it and nothing taken from it. God does it. Why does he do these things in our lives? So that we will revere him. So that we will fear him. So we'll realize we're not in control and we don't even understand what's going on. But so we will fear him. So your human limitations, the challenges that come into your life, the author of Ecclesiastes gives us some really good, good views and uh, glimpses of the value of them for growing in grace and seeing the limitations we face as humans for as basically just a challenge and an opportunity uh, and an impetus to trust in God and put our trust in Him and let Him be God. So let me read the conclusion of the whole matter. There's a lot more here we could go over. You can read through the notes and look at them as you have opportunity. I, my conclusion actually begins in the middle of page 3 there, but uh, uh, let me read four verses. I'm going to read the last two verses of chapter 11 and the last two verses of chapter 12. Chapter 11, be happy, young man, while you are young. I say amen. I'll tell you, Christian young people should be the happiest young people in the world, and I, I hope they are. And let your heart give you joy in the days of your youth. Follow the ways of your heart and whatever your eyes see, but know that for all these things, God will bring you to judgment. So, so be careful as you follow the ways of your heart that you make sure that you're consulting with God and that these things are pleasing to God. In verse 10, So then banish anxiety from your heart and cast off the troubles of your body for youth and vigor are meaningless. They're, they're, I think it's got to mean there you can't understand it. You can't make sense out of it. It certainly doesn't mean that they're vain or vanity, I don't think. And then the last two verses. Now all has been heard. Well, we certainly didn't hear it all, but you go home and you read the book when you get a chance. Here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep His commandments. Have a relationship of trust and respect with God where you know Him personally and keep His commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. That's what we are. We're men. We're human beings. We're women. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or whether it is evil. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your amazing wisdom. It's far beyond anything we can know or comprehend. Uh, God, we would ask you'd give us grace to trust you. We ask you'd give us grace to not try to understand everything that's going on in our lives where we can't understand it, but to leave it in your hands and trust you as a good and loving and wise and all-powerful God who's doing what is best for us. And we thank you, God, that we can know you and we can fear you and we can have this relationship with you. And we ask you to help us to grow from grace to grace 
as we look into the face of Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen.